A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide. Rudy Gabriel with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode about Rabbi Yehuda Assad has been generously sponsored. Lezecher Nishmas, Rabbi Yehuda Assad, may he continue to be a Melitz Yeshir for his entire family, for Bracha, Nachas, Shedochim, and Refuas, especially for Chaim Sholb and Pesel, should have a Refua Shalema as well. One of the most famous things about Rabbi Huda Asad is the picture that's taken of him, which supposedly, and this is a legend which actually might be true, I wasn't able to fully verify it, the more I looked into it, the more it seems like that it's a consensus that this is one of those legends that might actually be a true one. So if it is, that's wild. Um, if it's not, it's, you know, also wild. Um, so that they took a picture of him post-mortem. After he had already passed away, they propped him up in a chair, they dressed him in his Shabbos clothing, put a safer in his arms, and they take a picture of him for posterity, which hung in the homes of every good, upstanding Hungarian Jew until the Holocaust, the uh, funds that they were able to raise from selling this picture, they used to marry off the daughters, or daughter, the youngest daughter, I think, was the only one not married, of Rabbi Yehuda Asad. So they, they were able to use it as a good fundraiser also. And this was a picture they took of him after he had already passed away. That's probably the most famous thing that even people who are not familiar with his life and accomplishments, they have heard of him. But he was really a quite an accomplished figure. He was a rabbi, a paisik, a Rosh Hashiva, and one of the most influential leaders of Hungarian Orthodoxy of the 19th century. The story of the development of Hungarian Orthodoxy is such a fascinating one, and a profile of Rabbi Yehuda Assad's life can actually be seen in a context, in, in this context, as a chapter in its development, with the Chassam Soifer, of course, as the founder, then also the Maram Banet, who the latter was Rabbi Yehuda Assad's primary teacher, and the former, the Chassam Seifer, was someone who he developed a very warm relationship with later on in life. And it was the Chassam Seifer's students who had a decisive and long-lasting impact on Hungarian orthodoxy, um, whose reverberations are still with us today in today's orthodox society in the United States and Israel. So Rabbi Yehuda Assad, who was not a student of the Chassam Seifer, he interacted with all of these parties that I just mentioned, um, and he therefore can justifiably be viewed as one of the architects of Hungarian Orthodoxy. You have to understand that Hungary was a province in the Austrian Empire at this time. It only becomes a unified 
um, double capital of the Austro-Hungarian Empire after the passing of Rebuda Assad. At this point, it's the Austrian Empire. It's post-Napoleon, which is important because they're on the road to emancipation. The Jews are lobbying for emancipation. There's already the reform uh, movement in Germany, and a similar movement is already developing in Hungary as well. And that's the challenge is that the Chassam Seifer, the Maram Banet, and especially his student, Rebuda Assad, is faced with and is confronting on a regular basis. And the geographical borders of, of Hungary are not what modern Hungary is today because it's within the Austrian Empire and many areas are considered Hungarian areas, including places that are part of the Czech Republic of Slovakia, Romania today. It's, it was considered of the greater Hungarian area. And of course, we have the divide within uh, Jewish Hungary between Oberland and Unterland. The Oberland is the Yeki German Jews who arrive from the West, and they migrate East, and that's that culture and and, uh, and and value system, whereas Unterland is primarily immigrants from Galicia and Ukraine, and is, and is much more Hasidic, and uh, that's two communities, and they're both relatively new communities, and Hungarian Jewry as a whole is uh, relatively new, it's from primarily its development in the 1700s, although there is an ancient community from uh, much earlier, and um, and the Chassam Seifer uh, and his influence on the development of basically the Oberland part of that community is the decisive factor that the that Rebuda Assad, though he is not a student of his, but this is the world that he's operating in. Of course, the Chassam Seifer and his influence needs its own series, which hopefully we'll have one day. It's incredible that we're this far into Jewish history soundbites and we have yet to cover a full, uh, a full uh, series on the Chassam Seifer and his, um, you know, tremendous impact on the Orthodox uh, world. So it's into this world of the 18th and 19th century that Rebuda Assad is born into and grows up, and he's born in 1794 to a simple family, not from a great rabbinic background, in the small Hungarian town of of Oshad or Assad, which is where he gets his name from. It's near Budapest. In Hungary, that's Hungary proper, not Unterland. This is real, real heavy Oberland. He's orphaned at a young age of his father. His mother, with great sacrifice, uh, sends him off to study in yeshiva. Um, in in, uh, in in several places, in, in in several places, uh, the Hungarian yeshiva model, which um, again the Chassam Seifer is one of the architects of that, although there were yeshivas even before him. Um, but it was very quite different in substance and in structure from the yeshivas in Poland, Lithuania, Russia. Uh, a completely different story, which I think I've touched on in earlier episodes. One of the major differences, for instance, it's worth pointing out, is the rather bizarre and troubling fundraising system employed in Hungarian yeshivas, which in which the young teenage yeshiva students would use their summer vacation and other times to canvas villages and shtetls around the countryside, fundraising for their yeshiva, essentially begging for their yeshiva, which is an interesting practice. Either way, so um, he, he has to engage in that practice as well. Um, Rabbi Assad, he first studies in a yeshiva in, in Dunash Sherdaheli, which I'm going to get back to. It's the town that features prominently in his life, throughout his life, at several stages, and his uh, it's under the tutelage at that point of Reb Aaron Bichler. From there, he moves on to the greatest 
probably the greatest or one of the greatest yeshivas in Central Europe, in Nicholsburg, where he emerges as a prime and favorite disciple of one of the most influential rabbis of the era in that part of the world, Rav Mordechai Banet, Rav Mordechai Banet, the Maram Banet, he's the rabbi of Nicholsburg, the chief rabbi of Moravia, and he also has this large yeshiva. The uh, We go to his grave in Nicholsburg, Rav Maram Banet, I was just there a few weeks ago with a group. Rabbi um, Shbalk of Nicholsburg is there, and, and the Tzemach Tzedek, uh, who's the Rav of Nicholsburg, is there. So he's there prominently as well. Maram Banet, uh, once we mentioned him, he was a student of the Naidi Yehuda, and primarily a student of Rabbi Shmuel Shmelka of Nicholsburg, which is interesting because he was a Talmudic student of his. He never really became a Chassid. Either way, he succeeded um, Maram Banet succeeds Reb Shmelk of Nicholsburg as the rabbi of Nicholsburg upon his passing in 1789, and he remains there as the rabbi for the next 40 years until his passing. In the yeshiva that he leads, which Reb Yehuda Asad now comes to study in, at its peak were 400 students at this yeshiva. Um, Maram Banet was uh, very influential in the public sphere. He partners with the Chassam Seifer on several occasions on issues of public policy and confronting the challenges of modernity and reform in both Germany and in Hungary. He was very influential, left a long-lasting impact on Hungarian orthodoxy. And that's who Rabbi Huda Asad becomes a Talmud of, a student of, and he's a favorite of his while studying in the yeshiva. He was there for four years. Um, the Barambanet also looked after him since he was an orphan, um, in, 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 in Poland and Lithuania and Russia and yeshivas, the eating system of yeshiva students was referred to as teg, essen teg, eating a daily meal by someone up by the townspeople's homes. Of course, you leave it to the Hungarians to have a different term for it. Over there it was called kostaj or kostaj. Uh, I'm not sure the Hungarian pronunciation. Um, they didn't use Yiddish so much in these parts. It was more German or Hungarian. Um, and and uh, and that's what uh, Rabbi Yudha Asad had to do. He he had to find his meals there. Um, it was especially challenging for him. He was one of the poor, poorest students in the yeshiva. He once the young Rabbi Yudha Asad once saved up some money and bought his own set of dalad minim for sukkis lulav and esrig. But he could not afford a new pair of shoes. He had torn shoes. And this contrast of this young yeshiva student walking around with his own set of dalad minim and yet. Having torn shoes was someone that everyone noticed and remembered, and as a result, people started to nickname him the Pantoffelbacher, which means the boy with the slippers. Uh, the Marambanet appointed him to deliver a shear to a group of younger students in the yeshiva. He held him in very high esteem as one of his star pupils. He defended him against some jealous students at the yeshiva who attempted to take him down. You're talking about students of the Marambanet in one of the premier yeshivas in Central Europe, and yeah, these activities took place in the yeshiva as well. But either way, the Marambanet uh, defended him. And when someone overheard the Marambanet preparing his Shabbos Hagadol speech, and he was saying out loud, so what if my student Yehuda asks this question? Then I'll have to answer it in this fashion. In other words, part of his preparation for his Shabbos Hagadol drasha was actually anticipating his young student's question, questions and how he's going to answer uh, answer the problems that he poses to him during the speech. That's the esteem that the Maram Banet held for Yehuda Asad at this young age. He receives his rabbinical ordination from Reb Mordechai Banet, and at the age of 22, he marries his wife, who is from this 
town that he had previously studied in, Duna Serdhali. And he settles there, eventually being appointed as a Dayan in the local rabbinical court. And now that he was in the rabbinate, he started to have an affiliation with the Chassam Seifer, who of course was the biggest rabbi in the area. Um, which is especially true of following the passing of his teacher, the Maram Banet, he was, got even closer with the Chassam Seifer. Um, and uh, and uh, um, also because his first rabbinical posting became the rabbi of the town of, of Reita, which was right near Preshburg, where the Chassam Seifer was the rav later on, the Rabbi Sad is the rabbi in, in Shenich. Uh, uh, again, I may be pronouncing all the names of these towns incorrectly. Hungarian uh, town pronunciation is definitely not my strong point, but he was in Shenich for uh, over 20 years. And he had a yeshiva in both of these towns where he served, and he taught in the yeshiva on a regular basis. He was constantly teaching yeshiva students and engaging them. Um, whoever was not able to obtain kostadje, this uh, teg to eat, eat in the townspeople's homes, he would invite them to eat in his own home. So many of the students ate in the Rosh Hashiva's home where his wife would actually cook the meals for many of the yeshiva students. Once when he was delivering a shear to the local layman in the town, so one of the Balabatim posed a question which didn't make any sense. So he tried answering uh, the guy, but, uh, but he wasn't getting it. So he finally says to him, I think you stole this question from someone else. So the guy is shocked. What does that mean? So Yubida Asad clarifies to him, he says, usually you ask such logical questions, such good questions, but this question makes no sense. So I figured you must have taken it from someone else because it's not befitting you. That's how he was able to put him in his place without, uh, without, uh, without making him feel bad. Um, in 1853, he returns to his old town of Duna Serdehali, this time, Serdehali, so this time as the rabbi of the town. This is a town in what's today southern Slovakia. Um, that is, Duna Serdehali is how it's in Hungarian in, and in Yiddish, that's how Jews referred to it. In German, it was called Niedmarket. In Slovakian, it was referred to as Duna Iskistareda, I think. That's how you pronounce it, something along those lines. Either way, those days it was considered part of Hungary. It still is near the Hungarian border. The population of the town is primarily Hungarian, even though it's in Slovakia. Before the war, there was a prominent Jewish community there since the mid-1700s. It's situated in the heart of Oberland, and with immigrants from Moravia, from, uh, from that, which they eventually the Jews were half the town's population. There was over 200 Jewish families at the time that uh, Rabbi Huda Assad was the rabbi there. He had a yeshiva there as well, which peaked at 150 students. So it was already a prominent yeshiva in the area. That's all his in his rabbinical positions. However, the primary legacy of Rabbi Huda Assad is his public leadership well beyond the confines of his own com- community in confronting the challenges facing the Jews of the Austrian Empire in the 19th century. The spectrum of Jewish reactions to the anticipated emancipation that they were to receive from the government of Austria was it crossed the whole spectrum. There were the assimilationists, there was the reform, later the neologue, with rabbis promoting it, such as Aaron Churin and others, many others, just one example. There's the neo-Orthodox approach, which in Germany was Rubshamshin or Fall Hirsch, but especially in 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 uh, in, uh, in these areas, it was Rabbi Israel Hildesheimer, who later on was famous in Germany. But when 
he was still a nearby in Eisenstadt for many years. Um, and then there's the old school, middle of the road Orthodox, not middle of the road, you know, they're pretty, not, not exactly middle of the road, as opposed to the extremists, that's what I mean. We'll see in a second. But people like the Ksav Seifer, the son of the Ksav Seifer, um, and we'll see soon Rabbi Huda Asad himself. And then there's the militant or ultra-Orthodox or extreme Orthodox, um, such as represented by Rabbi Hillel Lichtenstein, Rabbi Hillel Kolomaya, um, who Rabbi Huda Asad had a very tense relationship with because he was the representative of the extremism of Hungarian Orthodoxy. Um, and it's also emanating from the Chassam Seifer. Rabbi Hillel Lichtenstein is, of course, a close student um, of the Chassam Seifer, and he ultimately brings that brand of orthodoxy to Unterland and unifies it with Hungarian Hasidus. Um, and uh, and that that makes it an interesting combination. The extremist version of the Chassam Seifer Hungarian orthodoxy, as opposed to the moderate one represented by the Chassam Seifer's own son, the Ksav Seifer. Um, so this, this Rebhil Lichtenstein's version combined with the Hungarian Hasidus and Unterland, forms what, uh, you know, what has a long-lasting legacy of what Hungarian Orthodoxy came to be known for. Um, either way, Rebuda Sad is placed somewhere in the middle of that, similar to the Ksav Seifer, and he had an interesting relationship with people on the extreme, such as Rebhil Lichtenstein. One time they had a conversation, and, uh, and, and uh, Rebuda Sad um, was was losing his patience with Reb Hill Lichtenstein, um, and he finally says to him, he says, your name is Hill, but really I should be named Hill because I need Hill's patience in order to deal with you. Um, in, but even when, even when Reb Hill Lichtenstein went against a rabbi in Pressburg, who was appointed by the Ksav Seifer, who Reb Hill Lichtenstein felt was too liberal, uh, and it was also a subtle critique on the Ksav Seifer himself for allowing this fellow to speak publicly in German. Um, you know, the, the Reb Hillel was actually quite critical in general of the Ksav Seifer. He claimed that the true legacy of the Ksav Seifer was with his, with his students, his extreme students, such as himself, and not with his son, the Ksav Seifer. So he had this dispute, where, where is the true legacy of the Chassam Seifer? Which is, of course, an interesting story. What is the true legacy of the Chassam Seifer? It's something that still hasn't been solved, but it already started immediately with the Chassam Seifer's passing um, among his students and family. Either way, Rabbi Huda Asad, during this controversy between this uh, rabbi and in, in, uh, this, appointed, this uh, appointee of the Chassam Seifer, uh, and and Reb Hillel Lichtenstein, Sir Yehuda Asad, was against um, ab- opposing Reb Hillel Lichtenstein, meaning censuring him. In other words, uh, uh, you know, saying that you 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 know you're, you've gone too far, you've gone too extreme. He was against doing that. In other words, keep the peace. Don't make dispute among Orthodox rabbis. That was Reb Yehuda Asad's position. He said Orthodox rabbis can't afford to criticize each other. Because orthodoxy is on the defensive, they're weak, they're a minority, and therefore they need to present a united front against modernity. By the way, this policy may have unintentionally enhanced the extreme flank in Hungarian orthodoxy, uh, because the moderates, in Rebuda Assad's position, was that the moderates should not uh, oppose the extremists. 
Um, so when you combine that with Unterland Hasidic faction, then that becomes the most long-lasting legacy of Hungarian religion, truly, until this very day. And this has had a decisive impact on the post-war world. In fact, a similar trend can actually be traced in the early decades of the post-war, where moderate voices were voluntarily self-silenced, and they did not oppose the more extreme positions within the Orthodox community, because they recognized that Orthodoxy was a small defensive minority in the post-war era, attempting to rebuild, and therefore there was a need to close ranks and present a united front to face a common opposition. So that's an interesting side point. Either way, Reb uh, Reb has a close enjoys a close relationship with the much younger of Israel Hildesheimer, and was in support of his school in Eisenstadt, which taught general subjects as well, and even he, he even sent two of his sons to study in that yeshiva. At the same time, he was also opposed to Reb Hildesheimer's uh, plans on opening a rabbinical seminary in the same spirit of having uh, general studies. He was opposed, Reb Yudasad was opposed to that plan. So he maintained a very fine balance between neo-orthodoxy and extreme orthodoxy, which is why I refer to it as somewhere in the middle. And even in some of his halachic opinions that was expressed, which were published by his son and successor, he expressed some more, I guess what we would call uh, liberal, I don't know if liberal is the right term for it, but more, uh, you know, reflecting the times than the prevailing developing view uh, in Hungarian orthodoxy, such as his ruling that wine touched by a non-observant Jew is still kosher. So again, that that uh, bit of a middle-of-a-road uh, uh, path that he was treading. Yet essentially, Rabbi Huda Asad, at the same time, he leads the charge to preserve tradition. He leads the charge to maintain the position of orthodoxy, to oppose the reformist elephant, uh, elements, excuse me, elements, and was the spokesman against change. This was from early on, and especially following the passing of his Rebbe, the Marambanet, and Echsam Seifer. He signs the very famous pamphlet of Rabbi Yaakov Etlinger, the Aruch Laner, which was titled Shloime Emune Yisrael in 1830 in opposition to reformist elements. He wrote letters. He led public outcries. He had polemics with many leading figures who were promoting assimilationist policies, reformist policies. He went against specific individuals who were promoting these issues, um, he wrote a letter to crying rabbis who sanctioned intermarriage, who changed the language and the content of prayer in the synagogues, and the like, and many, many examples of it. Um, this should be seen in the context of attempts at Austrian Jewry, at Hungarian Jewry, at attaining emancipation and equal rights, which they eventually did after the passing of Rabbi Assad in late 1860s by Franz Josef. Um, but here they're leading up to it. They're trying to get it. So many reformers and assimilationists are promoting patriotism and loyalty, first to the crown and then to the failed Hungarian revolt in 1848 against the crown, which is also a, a huge story. And it's, uh, it also leads to the assimilationists and the reform eventually abandoning the German language in favor of Hungarian. So it's, is it Hungarian patriot patriotism or is it patriotism to the Austrian uh, empire, which is German. Um, so that's, that's, uh, that's an interesting uh, dilemma as well. Either way, the Orthodox ironically adopted German. When the assimilationists and reform adopt Hungarian, so the Orthodox drop Yiddish and adopt German, and eventually they transition into Hungarian as well. 
That's uh, an interesting linguistic uh, tidbit. Uh, during this 1848 Hungarian re- Revolution, it was often dangerous for the Jewish communities because the Hungarians were revolting against the Austrian Empire. It was crushed, the revolt. Um, but there was, there, the Jews were very often caught in the middle of it all. And in fact, on the night of Pesach, there were rumors of marauding bands roaming the town streets where, where, um, where Yehuda Assad was the Rav. And there, there was a suspicion that there might be a full-blown pogrom on the way. And many fearful townspeople came for security to the rabbi's home. And when he reached the portion of the Seder in the Haggadah of Shemaych, excuse me, Shfeich Chamascha, he opens the door, and just as he opens the door, a messenger arrives at his door to relate that the danger had passed, there was no more uh, danger of a pogrom in the area. So he starts to gain a reputation as a miracle worker as well, which is something that would make him quite famous in his later years. Either way, getting back to his... Uh, his, leader, his public leadership against reform, uh, Sir Yehuda Assad sends a letter also to the Beisden of Nicholsburg after a liberal rabbi was appointed in the town and he decries, he writes in that letter, he decries that he heard that Jews would go to cafes on Shabbos morning in Nicholsburg and read newspapers while drinking coffee prepared by non-Jews and he felt that such activity was a slippery slope away from tradition and leading to um, you know, non-observance of Shabbos altogether. He was once asked by a modernist rabbi in Vienna if he could permit a Kayan to marry a divorcee, because this Kayan, who was no longer observant, was threatening to convert to Christianity if he was if he would not be given a dispensation to marry a divorcee. Rabbi Yudasada, of course, firmly forbade it, but you see how he's at the forefront of all this Changed. He's involved in basically every high-profile and also many low-profile polemics, disputes, and the like with all sorts of rabbis who are in the process of promoting reforming traditional practices as expressions of patriotism and loyalty and attempts to obtain emancipation. And literally, the list is endless. One of his last high-profile meetings was with the Emperor Franz Josef himself. In 1864, there was a rabbinic conference of Orthodox rabbis uh, to oppose the opening of a reformist rabbinical seminary. So they decide to send a delegation of several rabbis, including the Ksav Seifer, Rabbi Israel Hildesheimer, Rabbi Yirmiyo Lev, Rabbi David Deitch, and the speaker and the one who's supposed to lead the delegation is Rabbi Huda Assad, the senior rabbi of Hungarian Jewry at this point. Now on the agenda is the upcoming government approval of this establishment of the reformist-style rabbinical seminary, which the delegation wanted the emperor to rescind his permission, as they, of course, opposed its opening. So they got to meet with him. They actually got to meet the emperor, uh, Franz Josef himself, and he promised to accommodate them. He did not accommodate them. He just pushed it off. But several years later, it was actually after Abiyuda Assad's passing, and he allowed also, at that point, the Orthodox to resign from the Jewish communities, from the Kahals, and form their own autonomous community, the famous or the infamous, depending on how you look at it, the Tailung, the separation of the communities in Hungary, which is, of course, a different story. Either way, getting back to the meeting, uh, at the close of this meeting with the emperor, with Franz Josef, he asks the head of the delegation, Rabbi Huda Assad, to bless him. And he acquiesced, and Rabbi Huda Assad says to him, and he says, he says to him, you should reign as emperor of, your, of the Austrian Empire for many years. That's the blessing he gives. And of course, 
Franz Josef was emperor for an incredible 67 years and remains one of the longest reigning monarchs in world history. Which brings us to another fascinating facet of the life of Rabbi Yudha Asad. Having no affiliation with the Hasidic movement, Rabbi Yudha Asad was treated almost like a Hasidic rebbe and miracle worker in his later years. He was proficient in Kabbalah, but he shied away from it publicly, preferred to maintain those practices and study as a private affair. Um, but uh, that's what happened in the in his later years. Actually, a fascinating story um, that happened also at that his later years. Very strange story, actually, with him and the Ksav Seifer, who he was very close with. There was a rabbinical conference um, at which the Ksav Seifer, Ram Shmuel bin Yamin Sofer, the son of the Chassam Seifer, which he hosted, and he, at one point during this meeting, he shows all his guests what seems to be a genuine silver shekel from the time of the Beis HaMikdash. And he passes it around for all the rabbis to get a view of his precious possession, incredibly old, you know, tangible thing from the second Beis HaMikdash. And during this time, it gets lost. And uh, the Ksav Seifer wants to conduct a search. He wants to... Uh, do a body search of every rabbi in the room. He's lost his most precious possession, this shekel from the Beis HaMikdash. And Rabbi Yudha Asad protested. He said, it's not respectful to the rabbis present, and it's not respectful to the institution of the rabbinate to, to search rabbis and suspect them of being a thief. How can you suspect the rabbis, the great uh, rabbanim assembled, that they're a thief? God forbid. And a few minutes later, and the Ksav Seifer backed down. He said, I'm not going to search anyone. A few minutes later, the maid comes in and said, as she was cleaning up the table from all the food, they, uh, she found it. And there it is. At that point, Rabbi Yudha Asad pulls out of his own pocket also an exact replica, the same thing. And he says, I also have this as a collector's item. I happen to have it as well. Uh, a silver shekel from the base of Mikdash. He said, when I saw how excited you were, I didn't want to show it to anyone because you're the host and you were so excited to show it to everyone. But when you wanted to do this search, so then you would suspect me of being a thief. So I tried to, you know, to get you not to do it. And ultimately, they found it and lived happily ever after. Um, he passes away in 1866. And shortly after his passing, they, the split in Hungarian Jewry takes place between the Orthodox and the Neolog, uh, separate communities. In many ways, this is seen as part of the legacy of Rabbi Yudha Asad, as he had laid the groundwork for this eventual structure, which, we be, which would be the defining feature of Hungarian Jewry until its demise in the Holocaust. Upon Rabbi Yudha Asad's passing in 1866, besides for the picture that was taken after his passing, but of course also the rabbinical post in Serdahali was uh, open. Three years later, his son, Rabarin Shmuel Asad, uh, who was a student of his father as well as of the Ksav Seifer, was appointed to fill his father's position, and uh, he remained there for the next 36 years until his passing in 1905. So that's a, a little bit about Rabbi Yehuda Asad and his world that he operated in and his legacy. This is Yehuda Geber uh, with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, and sponsorships. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites at uh, Podbean or your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoy.